Bibles with you to uh, open them up to Psalm 38, and we'll continue working our way through the Psalms together. As we uh, begin in Psalm 38 tonight, we're looking at the third uh, uh, penitential psalm that we've come to uh, so far, uh, Song of, Re- of Repentance, that, uh, that David writes. Most of the time, uh, um, you know, when folks talk about the penitential psalms, the Psalms of Repentance of David, uh, they tend to always point to his most famous sin. Reality is we don't know which one he writes this over. We just know that he's, he's writing in response to sin, what's going on in his life. And in this psalm, he talks about uh, uh, the effects of sin. He's going to talk about sin's painfulness. He's going to talk about sin's loneliness. And then he's going to talk about how great it is after coming through all that to experience sin's forgiveness. And uh, so as we begin in, in uh, Psalm 38, he begins by calling on the covenantal uh, name of God. So he's calling on Yahweh, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses down. So David's making a cry, he's calling out to God and recognizing that he's in sin, and he's gonna he's gonna confess that in a in a few verses. But the first call out to God is that the judgment would be according to mercy. Now, most of the time, when we stand before a holy God, none of us are gonna want justice. I hope if you have any smarts at all, you're not gonna want justice, because if we get justice, there's not very much left of us. So he's he's crying out for mercy. He knows that God is a holy God, that God will judge sin. Sometimes still today, people, a lot of people struggle with the concept. There's a, there's a move, um, uh, through Christendom, uh, to erase hell, that there is no hell, that God's eventually gonna save everyone. Uh, decision for Christ is not mandatory. Christ wrought it all on the cross, and that's the good news. And it doesn't matter, you know, what you do or how you live or, or whether or not you receive it. All that doesn't make any difference. And, and as they're, what they do, what people have a tendency to do in that particular movement is they overemphasize, if that's possible, they overemphasize an attribute of God. We know that when we talk about God and His attributes, God has many attributes, okay? God is love. The Bible declares that's an attribute of God, right? The Bible also tells us God is holy. Holiness is an attribute of God. Uh, the Bible tells us that God is just, that God is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing. All these are attributes of God. So when we consider God, who He is, what He's like, what He's doing, what His purposes are in life, when we consider all of those things... What we have to realize is, in order to understand and comprehend who God is and what God's doing, we have to consider all His attributes. If we only focus on one attribute, for example, if all I focus on is the justice of God, I'm going to bend toward legalism. You guys with me? If all I focus on is the love of God, I'm going to go to what they call sloppy agape, or cheap grace. Maybe you've heard of that. Or easy believism. And that's what some of the errors are. Where people do that. What David does in Psalm 38 is recognize that God is a holy God is going to judge his sin. That he's guilty before God. And being guilty before God, he understands what he deserves from God. And in order to come to a right relationship with a holy God, we have to, that's where, that's our first step. That's our step off point. Right? If I don't, I have no reason to come to a Savior if I don't think I need saved from something. So if I think I'm a relatively good person, I got it all together, my good works are going to outweigh my bad works, what do I need a Savior for? But if I recognize I'm a sinner, if I recognize I'm guilty of offending a holy God, then I can also understand that that holy God who demands justice is also a God of love and has made a way for me. So that I can receive the free gift that he offers me, right? Doesn't cost me anything, but for me to, to put my life in his hands, to, to, to trust him, to, to cast 
myself upon him. So this is what David's doing here in the first two verses. He's saying, look, Lord, it's, I don't want to be, I don't want to be judged according to, to your justice. I don't want to be judged, uh, in your wrath or anger. The Bible's very clear. God hates sin. He doesn't want to be judged in those things. And he's recognizing in verse two that, that not only do the arrows of God, it's poetic language for the guilt that David feels over his sin, and the pressure, right? You're pressing down on me. You get the idea of a picture of, of this constant pressure that's in David's life because he's in a place or done a thing or been a part of something he knows he shouldn't have done. And so he's in that place and he's telling God, man, there's, this is, and he's going to move right from that point from, in verse three, he's going to move right to the painfulness of sin. Look, look how he describes how he feels when he's in sin. He says, there's no soundness in my flesh. There's no soundness, no health, no strength. Probably at this point in David's life, whatever was going on, he was, he was physically ill as a result of it. And in his physical illness, he's saying, man, I'm, I feel lousy. I feel terrible. I'm, I'm, uh, I have no soundness. I have no health within me. And then he gives the reason because of your anger. What does the Bible declare to us about the soul that sins? What's the Bible say? Bible says the soul that sins shall die. That the, the penalty for offending God is death. That's why Jesus had to die for you and I. Because if you and I died for our own sins, all we did is, is pay what was owed. We're not out of debt. But if he dies for us, he can purge that debt. He can set it aside, set it so we come to it and we see that, that David is saying, look, there's no soundness because of your anger, because sin's not okay. Um, he says, why? For my iniquities have gone over my head. Now the poetic picture he's painting is like standing there at the Sea of Galilee in a storm and the waves going over his head. The sin has covered me. I'm utterly, completely buried in it. He's not trying to make excuses. He's not trying to say, well, you know, it's some, it's so-and-so's fault, or, or it's because of this, or because of that. David just owns the issue, whatever it was. Whether it was the time when David numbered the people, whether it was the time when he sinned with Bathsheba, you know, there's, there's probably no shortage. If David was here with us, he could say, oh, there's lots of times. I, I found myself in sin, and I needed to come to the Lord seeking uh, uh, forgiveness. And that's what he's doing here. Seeking forgiveness, describing what sin is doing, how sin is working in his life. He says, my sin is like a heavy burden, too heavy for me. So the idea that he's saying is, I can't solve this myself. 1933, um, the humanistic movement wrote uh, the Humanist Manifesto, which states, there is no God, we must save ourselves. What David is saying here is the opposite of that. David is saying, I can't do this. I can't fix this. I can't solve this issue in my life. When I've shared before uh, a few times in, in, uh, in, gosh, whatever it was, 88 or something, when I was diagnosed with HIV because of uh, sin in my life, some choices that I had made, I couldn't fix that. There's, there's nothing you're going to do for that. Back in 88, there was not a bunch of pills to take. There was not some great plan. So when we faced that, all I could say is, my sin has covered me. I'm buried. It's too heavy a burden. I can't carry it. I can't solve it. I can't make it go away. I can't do anything with it. So... So that's what David's doing here, casting himself into the hands of God, who he's asking to judge him with mercy. Asking God to judge him with mercy. He says, my wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. So when we recognize, again, when we look at a penitential psalm, it's a cry, it's a song asking forgiveness from God. And so there's a lot of great things we can pull out of it. That the attitude of David, David recognizing the painfulness of sin and the struggle of sin. And if any of us have ever suffered at all because of our choices 
or, or the lame things that we've done in our life, then we can definitely understand the things that David's talking about. Man, this is, this is hard for me. The, the wounds, they're, they're foul and festering strictly because of my foolishness, my choice. I put myself here. I put myself in this situation. I put myself in this place. So the, the need to call out on, onto God. Again, God's going to do His work and He's going to bring His justice, but it, we want it according to His mercy. The painfulness of sin that He discovers. He says in verse 6, I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. So all of these are pictures, right, of the, the sorrow and pain and, and hurtfulness of sin. I, I ha- he says, I am troubled and I'm bowed down. It's like putting a heavy weight, the picture putting a heavy weight on a man so heavy that he can't stand up straight. That he's just hunched over by the, by the burden of it all. And then he says, all day long he goes mourning. All day long he's weeping and crying. There's a point in... Repentance, we, we're looking for the forgiveness of God, we're, we're looking for something called godly sorrow. The Bible says godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow is a little more than I'm sorry I got caught. Godly sorrow is a little more than I'm just sorry that life is hard. Godly sorrow is a sorrow that, that rightly sees the offense we have caused him. That's why in Psalm 51, which is a penitential psalm, a psalm of repentance, David says, against you and you only, Lord, have I done this, have I sinned. His call is that my offense, David, my greatest offense is to God. What I've done to him, the one to whom I owe it all. And so he's mourning all day, all day long, he's mourning. Now when Jesus comes and he stands at the... Uh, Sermon on the Mount, and he shares. You remember what he says about those who mourn? He lays out for us, Blessed is he who mourns, for he will be comforted. The idea that this is the right attitude in regard to our sin. Not a high-handedness. The Bible also talks about high-handed sin. Uh, uh, Sometimes, maybe you've heard it called willful sin. It's kind of a misnomer, because... Most sin is willful. In other words, it's not very often we sin on accident. We didn't know what we were doing was a sin. But it's not willful in that sense. It's not high-handed. It's not a sin that we're shaking in the face of God and saying, I have the right to do this. This is, this is my right to behave or to do or to say or to be these things. It's the opposite of that. It's mourning over our sin. Mourning over the hurtfulness of it. Mourning over the place where we find ourselves. And this is the attitude of David. And so this, if we have right relationship with God, and we're in that right place with Him, and we find ourselves in sin, this ought to be the response from our hearts. Uh, We sing songs that say, uh, Break my heart for what breaks yours. That I would see sin the same way God sees it. I also want to be able to see my brother and sister the same way God sees them, right? I don't want to see them necessarily through my eyes. But I want to recognize, I want to hate the things that God hates, love the things that God loves. And that's the attitude that we see David portraying as he works his way through Psalm 38. He says, My loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. Again, coming to that point. I'm, I'm unhealthy. I don't feel good. I don't have strength. Uh, his vitality is dried up. He's lost his vitality. He says, <clears throat> I am feeble and severely broken. And I groan because of the turmoil in my heart. So as he, as he culminates this particular stanza of the psalm, dealing with the painfulness of sin... He, he comes to a, a favorite phrase of mine. I like the concept of brokenness. The Bible tells us that the, there is a stone. David, remember David's uh, vision when he saw the statue, Nebuchadnezzar, right? The head of gold, chest of silver. You guys know what I'm talking about? When, or what I say, David? 
Uh, sorry, I meant Daniel. So in Daniel's, in Daniel's vision, or actually King Nebuchadnezzar's vision, and Daniel's interpretation, you remember how that ended. What happened to the statue? It says, a stone not cut out with hands came out of the heavens and hit it in its feet, and it blew up in the powder, and then that stone grew into a, a, a huge mountain. In Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament typology, mountains are kingdoms. So the idea is that there's coming a king who's going to wipe out all the other worldly kingdoms, and his kingdom is going to become the greatest kingdom of all time. That stone, the New Testament tells us, is Jesus Christ, the chief of the corner. And either we will fall upon the stone of Jesus and be broken, so recognizing our brokenness before a holy God, or the stone falls on us and grinds us to powder, just like it did to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. One speaks of destruction, the other speaks of salvation. That we come to the King of kings and the Lord of lords with a proper attitude in regard to sin. I'm broken. I, I, I am broken. I need Him. I need God to make me whole. That's the attitude of a penitentiary psalm. A psalm seeking forgiveness. A psalm seeking restoration. So that He comes and acknowledges that, Hey, I'm, I am feeble and severely broken. Not, I'm strong and I got it all together. Kind of flies in the face of the American dream. I pull my own boots on. You know, if I just try harder, I can make it happen. That may work in business, but it doesn't work in spirit. In the spirit, you need more of him and less of you. Uh, not so much about your effort as it is about your willingness to submit to him. And allow him to be Lord over your life. And so... He groans because of the turmoil in his heart. Now he moves to the next stanza of the psalm. And the next stanza, dealing with uh, sin and and seeking forgiveness of sin, he's going to talk about the loneliness of sin. What happens when we're in sin? He talked about the painfulness of sin, his weakness, how how he feels, how his soul feels. Now he's going to speak about the loneliness. Look at verse 9. He says, Lord, all my desire is before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. Now it's interesting. You'll notice something different about this Lord. The first Lord was the covenantal name of God. It was Yahweh. It was God's proper name. This Lord is not that. This Lord is is uh, Adonai. It is Master. Master. The first one, God's covenantal name. I'm in pain. I, I, want, I want you to judge me according to mercy. Now when he's Speaking of sin's loneliness, he says, Master, all of my desire is before you. You know the things that are in my heart. What I want. What I want. And my sighing. My sighing is, a, is the idea of, uh, of being uh, unhappy. In a place of unfulfilled. I'm... Uh, I'm have not reached my potential. I had other goals, and yet I find myself in this place. So my sighing, my desire is to be here, and the reality is I'm here. Because I'm not there, and I'm here, you know my sighing. You know my desire, God, is to be there. You know my desire is to, to live a life pleasing to you, and to be the man you want me to be, but the reality is I'm here. I'm here in this place. I'm here in my sighing. He says, My heart pants and my strength fails me. And as for the light of my eyes, it has gone from me. So he finds himself in darkness. His heart pants. He's, he's out of energy and strength. This is a picture that he's painting for us. His strength fails. And the light, direction, right? If Think about, he's describing himself in a dark place, in a place without strength. He can't go anymore. And not only that, he doesn't know which way to go. It's dark. I don't know where to go. In Psalm 119, he tells us it's the word of God that is a light. Right? That guides him, a light into his path. So he's, we, we know when he says, the light's gone out for me. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a picture for David of saying, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what to do. When I find myself in sin... 
Not only do I struggle with the painfulness of sin, but I struggle with that deep loneliness because I feel myself separated from God. I no longer know which way to go. I no longer have the strength I need to walk. I no longer have the sureness that, that this is what I should be about or that is what I should be about. So he finds himself in a very lonely place. He says in verse 11, not only in 9 and 10 does he feel this separation from God, but look at, look at verse 11. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. So he's saying there's a separation. My sin not only has brought a separation between me and, and, and God, but my sin has also brought a separation between me and my friends and family. There's separation there as well. Sometimes the choices that we make, the, the decisions to, to be disobedient cause a strain within the family and family relationships are broken. And so he's saying, look, I'm separated. I'm separated from my family. I'm separated from my friends. They, they don't want to have anything to do with me. And then verse 12, he's going to talk about his enemies. Those who seek my life, they lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt, Speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. So, not only am I separated from God, 9 and 10, and I don't know where to go, I find myself in a dark place, but I also am separated from friends and family, and even my enemies, they just long for my destruction. They, they think, this is the time. We got him in the dark, he doesn't know where to go, he's abandoned by God, he's abandoned by friends and family, this is the time that we can take them out. So the picture that David's painting, in my sin, I, I feel this weakness and this, this, this uh, unhealthiness in my bones, and my body actually aches as a result. And I feel this loneliness, not being uh, where God wants me to be, and, and being separated from friends and family, and ready, ripe, for the destruction of uh, my enemies. And then in verse 13, he, he still, still in that same stanza, he's saying, not only all that, but I, like a deaf man, do not hear. Now, there's a concept when we study the Bible, we look for patterns. We're, we're going to see one in the next psalm that's, that's really easy to see. Uh, but in this one, in this stanza, remember he started with his separation from God, right? He's, he's in a dark place, doesn't know where to go. Now he comes back to that idea. Like a deaf man, I don't hear. He's, he's referring to the Lord. I'm not hearing from God. I don't feel his presence. I don't have his direction. Like a deaf man, I don't hear at all. I can't, I can't hear what God has. And then he says, and I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Not only do I not hear from God... I don't even know what to say to him. I don't know what to say. So I don't say anything. What happens when we find ourselves caught up in sin? Maybe you've, you've heard this statement before. But oftentimes we find ourselves walking in sin. Sin keeps us from prayer. Sin keeps us from the word. And sin will keep us from fellowship. And the three things, the three ways that God can speak into our life, sin will cut off and purge. So David is saying, look, man, I, 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 need, to, I need to feel God's presence. If you think about someone like David, whose focus of their life was just to go after God with everything that's in him. I want to experience God. I want to know more about God. I want to, I want to hear him. I want to feel his direction. I want, to, I want to know where God wants me to go. And David, that was something that David experienced. The Bible says that if we delight in the Lord, He gives us the desires of our heart. The picture that's being painted there is if my desire is for God, if my whole heart is for Him, I want to follow God, I want to be with God, I want to hear from God, I want to, every time I got an opportunity, I want, to, I want to be in the place where God is, then God begins to lay those desires in your heart, His direction, the light, His voice, all those things that David has been cut off from. So he says, I feel like a deaf man. The difference when David, just think about it, when David found himself in sin, the difference was, was palatable. 
He could taste it. He could recognize the lack of voice in his experience because of his sin. He knew, I don't hear God speaking. I'm used to hearing God speaking. I don't hear him. I'm used to talking to God all the time, but, I, but I'm not talking to God anymore. Something is separating me from the things that God wants to do. And that's something that separates us as sin. And probably one of the biggest uh, diseases within the church is, is just being okay with sin. Well, it's just a little sin. It's just a little deal. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna play with the sin here. It's, a, it's not a big, it's not one of those big sins, you know, that they actually send you to hell for. This one, just a little sin. So I'm gonna sit over here and play with my little sin. But the problem is, it's separating you from the things that God wants to speak into your life. If we're men and women like David, who's men and women after God's own heart and a desire to seek and go after God with everything that's in us, then when that little sin comes along, we'll recognize, wait, the lights just got turned out. I mean, imagine what that's like. If we're sitting in a lighted room, like right here tonight, and somebody turned off all the lights, we're going to notice a difference, right? But sometimes in our lives, in our experience, in our Christian walk, we don't notice because we're so used to being in that place where it's dark. David recognized it. And we want to be men and women like David who recognize this is not okay. I don't want to excuse my sin anymore. I want to repent and turn from my sin. So he says, look, I don't know what to... I can't hear him, and I don't know what to say. He says, thus I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth... Is no response. You hear what he's saying? That's like, all of a sudden I'm deaf. Would you notice if you wake up in the morning and you're deaf? You don't hear anything. That's how David's walk with God was so tight that when something separated, something got in the way of that relationship with God, it was like something abruptly was turned off. All sound was gone. All light was gone. And that's the way David describes it. Like I'm in a place where there's no sound. There's no music. And there's no light. That's the place of David's sin. It sounds like a very lonely place to me. So, so far he's described a very painful place. Actual pain and illness and sickness. And then a very lonely place. Dark and, and quiet and... Nobody's around. I'm in a place utterly cut off. But then he has this phrase in verse 15. He says, for in you. Immediately in verse 15, everything in this psalm got personal. He didn't use a personal pronoun before that. He talked about Lord, he talked about Master, but nothing was personal. But now he finds himself in a place of the painfulness of sin and the loneliness of sin, and it gets personal. But you, Lord, for you, he, he, it's like he looks to him, and now he goes back to the covenantal name of God. He looks back to, O Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, right? He looks back at that, the, the covenantal name, and he says, For in you, O Lord, I hope, and you will hear, O Lord my God. So at this point, the stanza moves now to sin's forgiveness. So he's saying, here I am in the dark. I can't hear. I don't know what to say. Here I am in the dark. I'm a lot of pain and, and, and I, feel, I feel separated from God. But then he says, he makes a choice. He makes a choice that says, in you, God. It's like he, he looks up to where the heavens are, even though he can't see them. And he says, in you, O oh Lord, in you, I hope. You're the only one who can get me out of this. You're the only one who can lift me out of the pit. You're the only one who can take me out of the darkness. You're the only one who can take me from the place of loneliness. He said, for I said, hear me lest they rejoice over me. Lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves against me. He's saying, God, I need you to move because I'm right at the point of, of, of losing. 
When you can make the enemy there losing his battle to sin, you can make the enemy any of his real enemies, the Philistines or the people that he fought against. It really doesn't make any difference. He's saying, man, I'm right at the place where if, if you don't show up, God, it's over. It's over. You know that most, uh, most, I guess that's, I don't know if that's accurate. A lot of people in America live two weeks from homelessness. Like if something happened and they lost their job or things really went south, their things are so tight in the average budget that, that it, the downward spiral would be so rapid. People would, would be out of, I see people come through here all the time. Hundred different sad stories about, you know, what went wrong in their life and how they ended up where they are. And that's really what David's saying. He's saying, I'm right here. If God, if you don't show up, it's over. I'm out. I've lost. If you're not here. And sometimes that flies in the face, I think, in some ways of the American dream. Because the American dream says, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it better. But that's not what God... God doesn't want you to try harder to make it better. God wants you to want Him like David wanted Him. God, if you don't show up, I'm lost. If you don't rescue me, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's utterly over if I, don't, if I don't have you. I need you completely, wholly, totally. Look what he says in verse 17. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. So the picture is, this is it, man. I'm, I'm, I'm at the edge. I'm at the edge. I'm... Uh, Anything else happens, the slightest breeze, I'm going over. I'm ready to fall. I'm ready to go over at any time. And, and my sorrow, the sorrow that he has, just, just get the picture of that sorrow, is a sorrow over the separation that's between him and God. He wants back what he had before. He wants back the experience of, of just having that tight relationship with God. And, and missing that, he says, man, my sorrow, always before me. Always before me. I see where I am, and it's not where I want to be. My sorrow, it's always before me, for I will declare my iniquity, and I will be in anguish over my sin. Now that, I told you we were coming to the point where David's going to confess, and this is what he's talking about here. He says, I'm going to confess it. I will declare Make the proclamation. I will tell you of my iniquity. It's not David when he when he repents doesn't use language like sometimes we use. We we're in a hurry. We want a quick uh, talk with God, so we'll say, "God, forgive me for my sins," and we go on. But David says, "I'll declare my iniquity. I'll tell you what I've done. I know what has separated me from you. I'll declare it." And I will be in anguish. I'm upset about it. I don't want to be here. I see my sin how you see it. And that's an important concept for us in repentance. One of the primary issues in the United States of America today is that there are people all across the nation who want to argue about whether or not different things are sinful or not. Now, according to the Word of God, if something's sin, whether you like to do it or not, is irrelevant. If it's sin, it's sin. And if it is, then I should be in anguish over my sin. Not necessarily go to Congress and say, hey, you've got to pass some law so that my sin can be okay. Those, it's hateful for someone to tell me that my sin is wrong. It's hateful for somebody to tell me that I have to change my behavior, this thing. And you can put whatever sin you want to in there. It's, they're, as far as I'm concerned, all the same. All the same. We excuse way too many and say, oh, what's the big deal? So I'm a liar. We, we call it something nicer. I'm exaggerator. We, we coddle it. But God wants us to be in anguish over it. To declare our iniquity and be in anguish. That my soul hurts uh, over the separation that I have. Now look, he goes on in verse 19. He says, but my enemies are vigorous and they're strong. And those who hate me 
wrongfully have multiplied. So he's saying it's, it's like he's looking over and he's saying there's this huge army coming against me, God. Huge army. All I can see is enemy. And I'm in the dark and I can't hear you and I can't see you. And I know it's my sin that put me here. So I'll declare it and I'll be, I, I will have anguish. I'll see it like you see it. <clears throat> and as I deal with the things that are going on and the things that I'm facing and what's going on, I, I see these enemies coming like, like I'm going to be overrun at any moment. It's in a really desperate place and a really desperate time. And he says, those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries because I follow what is good. Why is the enemy piled up? Because David is saying, now I'm coming to you. And the more I come to you, God, the more the enemies are going to pile up. The more I come to you for restoration, the more I come to you for strength, the more I come to you to follow you and to be who you want me to be, the enemies are going to pile up around me. But I don't have to be afraid of them. If I have you, he could put 10,000 to flight, right? The numbers never, David was never afraid of the numbers when he was with the Lord. So in verse 21 and 22, he looks to God and he says, Do not forsake me, O Yahweh. O Lord. Still personal. Do not forsake me. Stay with me, God. Oh my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Master, my salvation. He's in a desperate place, overwhelmed, enemies, darkness, deafness, but he's calling on God. Lord, I need you. I need you. You show up, I'm going to be okay. I need you to forgive me. I need you to lift me up. I need you to help me out. That's the attitude that brings restoration. That's the attitude that brings strength. That's the attitude that reinvigorates and brings life. That's the attitude that made David a man after God's own heart. Because he wanted what God wanted more than he wanted anything else. What do you want, God? So, he writes the penitentiary psalm of uh, Psalm 38. We come to Psalm 39 next, and we look at Psalm 39. You'll notice in the, in the intro it says, To the chief musician, that's a worship leader. And he names them. There's one of three, there's three guys named in the Bible that are worship leaders in the Bible. This is one of them. Jeduthun, a psalm of David. So to the worship leader, Jeduthun. You can read about him in 1 Chronicles 16 and 1 Chronicles 25, where David appoints Jeduthun. Asaph was another, and I can't remember the third guy. But if you look in there, I'm sure you'll see him. So these guys are worship leaders, and David is, is writing this, this psalm. This is a psalm of lament and he talks about two stages of overcoming there are two stages of overcoming and this psalm is is laid out in a chiastic you can see it if you look at it if we as we look at it he's going to talk about being silent quiet before the lord and then he's going to talk about his prayer i'm silent and then i pray i'm silent And then I'm praying. He's going to follow that pattern as he works his way through. Let's take a look at it. He said in verse 1, I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. So the first thing he opens up in, look, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. It's a a, a psalm of lament. So I'm struggling. And first thing David says to do in the midst of his struggling is be quiet. (laughs) <laughs> you ever catch yourself venting? You know the Bible doesn't have anything good to say about venting. We talk about venting all the time, but the Bible says <clears throat> it's lame to vent. The Bible says, the first thing David says is, wait a minute, be silent. Be silent. David said, especially for him, he says, I'm going to guard my ways so I don't sin with my tongue. I don't want to say things I'm going to regret later. Anybody ever done that? I still remember. I was like 12 years old, uh, maybe younger, maybe. But I was playing, I was still playing baseball then. So before high school, still playing baseball. A game, it was game day. 
<clears throat> got my uniform on, I can't find my glove. Anybody ever had that experience? Can't find my glove. Where's my glove? Oh, and I was, <clears throat> I used to have a, a hard time with my temper. And so I'm getting really mad and I'm, and I'm yelling and I'm carrying on and, and I start yelling at God because I'm mad that I can't find my glove. Now I'm 50 years old and I still remember that. I still remember yelling at God because I can't find my glove and my mom, who was, who was so good at this, my mom came from my grandma and both of them were masters of guilt. They could in, in, Two words or less make you feel so guilty. Was That's why I, I think I'm cured from feeling guilty anymore. But my mom from the other room, while I'm yelling at God, I'm all mad. Uh, my mom says, God hears you. And I just remember stopping and thinking, wow, why am I yelling at God? This is pretty stupid. I'm looking for a baseball glove. But, you know, when you're 12, I guess that was a big deal. Sometimes I catch myself, I just don't yell out loud no more, but I feel myself getting angry at God because of the circumstances that are going on in my life. You put whatever circumstance in there you want. Put any circumstance you want in there. Wasn't that long ago, you know, what, just before Christmas, um, Levi is working at the church late at night, gets picked up and taken to jail. I got a phone call at three in the morning. Hey, Jackie, we arrested Levi. I'm like, oh, scratching my ears out. What? What are you talking about? So uh, I forget who called me, but I get off the phone. It wasn't one of the police, so I got off the phone and called the police. I happened to have a couple of those guys' phone numbers. So I called them and to say, what's going on? What happened? You know, I'm a little freaked out. And uh, it took us a long time. The, the, when Levi shared his testimony, the men's breakfast, not this last one, but the one before, so was that two months ago? He, uh, 82 days, he did for something that was five years old, that was a paperwork issue that didn't get filled out and turned in right, which then extended his probation, got a bench warrant, nobody knew about it. They didn't find him for five years, they hook him up 82 days. He's, he spends Christmas in jail. Then he gets sent over to New Mexico. Don't you think somewhere in there you might, if that was your experience, you might find yourself angry at God like a 12-year-old yelling at God because he can't find his glove? I was, I was actually pretty stoked uh, with Levi because many of the times that I was able to, to get a hold of him, we actually talked a lot when he was in Twin Falls because uh, you can talk through the computer like um, Skype in jail. It's weird, but they, they're, they're wearing orange. But other than that, it's the same. And his attitude was really good. His attitude was, I'm not saying he never had low times, but I'm saying his attitude overall was really good. And, and he just kept looking for opportunities to do something for the Lord while he was there. The funniest thing, look, I, I've seen guys in jail. I've been ministering out at the jail for five or six years. And uh, once they put you in a pod, you stay in a pod. The only reason they move you out of a pod is if you get in a fight. But Levi get in a pod and he start a Bible study. And they get like seven, ten guys coming to this Bible study and they'd move him. So he'd get that Bible study started. It was like a little mini picture of Paul. He'd get that Bible study started, they put him in another pod. There's no Bible study in that pod. So he'd start a Bible study in that pod. And they'd get about 10 guys going to that Bible study and they'd move them again. They moved them three times. Never seen that. Three times and in three different pods, he started three different Bible studies that made a difference and impact on guys' lives that I probably could have never got into. When we find the circumstances of life in a place where we feel it's unfair, it's easy for us to get an attitude that says, I'm angry at God. But David says, stage one, when you find yourself in a difficult situation, just be silent. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Here he said, I'm not going to talk. <laughs> I'm just going to be quiet. Usually, the only time saying the first thing that comes out of your mouth is effective, it might be a test. 
right? If you're taking a test, they say the first thought, that's what you want. But when you're talking, it's not always the first thing that comes to your mouth that you should say. You guys know what I mean? I hope you do. So David is saying, be silent. Be silent. I'm not going to talk. He says, I was mute in verse 2 with silence. I held my peace even from good. And my sorrow was stirred up. He says, not only he's, he's staying quiet, he's circumstanced, he's not happy about the circumstance. Remember, this is a, a psalm of lament, so David's frustrated or upset about something. And in overcoming whatever he's frustrated or upset about, he says, I'm keeping silent. And while I'm keeping silent, he, says, he, he then said, not only am I keeping silent and not blaming God, but then I'm, gonna, I'm even going to keep silent from the good. I'm not going to say anything good. And that's when his heart catches fire, right? You see what happens? I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up, and my heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. So when he's talking about his heart on fire, I'd love to to paint a a different picture, but the, the Hebrew poetry that's going on here, what he's talking about is, I'm getting so frustrated, I can't stop. I, I, I have to say something. I, if I don't say something, I'm going to explode. So, part one, stage one, be silent. Part two, how did he speak? This is in the next verse. In the next verse, he had to speak, he had to say something. So who's he talked to? Yahweh, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, covenantal name. When he had to speak, he talked to God. He said, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am? So when he calls out to God, he's going through a rough time. He's going, he's struggling, frustrated, it feels like he's going to explode, and he looks to God, and he says to God, I want you to help me understand the brevity of life. That's what all those verses mean. Help me understand the brevity of life. That life is short. Two weeks ago, I'm in a hospital praying with Joey Houston for his dad. Friday will be Joey Houston's funeral. Life is short. We never know how short it is. Life is brief. Over and over again, David's going to use the term, life is a vapor. It's like a gas. You can see it for a moment, but then it dissipates. Life is short. And the concept in that, whatever I'm going through, is temporary. Not eternal. My life is short, life is a breath, that I may know how frail I am. Verse 5, indeed you have made my days as hand breaths, four fingers wide. You've made my days a hand breath. There's my, that's my life. It's not very big, right? It's not very big. David says, I want to understand, Lord, remind me of the brevity of life. Remind me of the size of this struggle in connection with with my future. Uh, and my age is like nothing before you. How how old are we compared to God? Yeah, not doing so good, are we? Even the old guys, the guys who lived a long time. Real short lifespan compared to God. So he says, my life is short compared to you. Certainly... Every man at his best is but a vapor, just a gas fading away. So he's saying, Lord, remind me of the brevity of life. I'm, I'm frustrated with this situation. When I was 12 years old, the glove thing was a big deal. Today, it's not such a big deal. Lord, remind me of the brevity of life. When I was 12, I thought that was a big thing. It's not such a big thing. And I bet if you could talk to Levi, he'd tell you the same thing. When he was in jail, being in jail was a big deal. Now he's out. He sees those days different. That don't mean he wants to go back. But he sees those days different. We understand, we have to recognize the brevity 
of life. Nothing is eternal. No matter how long it lasts, nothing is eternal. It's temporary. So then he says, Surely every man walks about like a shadow, like a ghost, like a phantom. Every man walks about like a phantom. Surely they busy themselves in vain. Just think about how we live our lives. Always bustling and hustling and moving from A to B and got to do this and got to do this and got to work this deal and got to move to this place. <clears throat> got to make these plans. Got to go to this this spot. Got to go, go entertain myself in this way or that way. And then in the next part of verse 6, he says he heaps up. If you notice in your Bibles, the word riches is in italics. What does that tell us about it? It's not there. It's given to us by the translators to help us understand. Sometimes when we look at the things that translators give us to understand, it can make things more confusing. When it says he heaps up, just picture it. We're running around everywhere like a phantom. And we're, we're busy going to and fro, and we're piling up all our stuff. And that next verse, it doesn't matter what it is, riches, stuff, uh, you know, whatever. We pile it up. And, and we don't know who will gather them. We spend our life making whatever thing in our life be so important. And really, it's not all that important. Nebuchadnezzar built this incredible nation. The head of gold. How long did it take it to fall? One king after him. About Solomon. The height of the nation of Israel. Biggest time, man. Israel is smoking when Solomon was king. How long did that kingdom last? Just till he died. His, his son that took over divided the kingdom. We work and we work and we work at amassing this pile. And at the end, it's just a pile of, of junk that goes to somebody else. David says, God, remind me of the brevity of life. Remind me of the of the way we run around and we all these things seem so important. But in reality, if we can see things from God's point of view, we can we can understand, we can see more clearly. As he moves on in the, on the on the idea, he goes on, and now Lord, what do I wait for? What is the purpose of life? Is what he's asking. What what is it? In terms of this, I was, I'm going through this hard time and I make the choice to be silent. Finally, I, I, I can't hold it in anymore, so I go to God and I pray and I say, God, you give me understanding of what's going on in my life and you help me recognize the things that are really important in my life. And so what's the purpose of it all? My hope is in you. If my hope is in God, in that relationship... That will give me what I need to overcome all the frustrating parts of life, no matter how crazy they are. The illness that you can't get over, the, 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 the somebody did you wrong, or, or whatever, every, every, every possibility from A to Z. If my hope is in God, then those things stay small. Perspective stays where it needs to be. And I see God as the all-encompassing goal of my life. And He's so big that all my problems stay in the proper perspective. And that was the key that David's laying out. And then he prays for deliverance. In verse 8, Deliver me from all my transgressions. And do not make me the reproach of the foolish. Then in verse 9, we do it again. You guys see the pattern again? We just did the silence to prayer. Now look what he says. I was mute. I did not open my mouth. So he goes back to it. But now he's going to give us another aspect of it. <clears throat> First, he's, he doesn't give us this aspect. He just tells us, here's my circumstances, and so I'm going to be quiet. And it, it wells up within me. When I finally speak, I'm going to speak to God. I'm asking Him for understanding to show me the, 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 the things that are really important in life. I get my focus and my hope is in Him. And then he goes, and he's, he's looking back on it, and he says, look, <clears throat> I was silent, and I did not open my mouth. Why? Because it was you who did it. He's looking at God and saying, it was you, God, who brought this storm. 
It was you, God, who allowed this thing in my life, this frustration, this thing that I'm so upset about. It was you, God, who did it. And looking back on it, I'm saying, I'm glad I was silent and I just called on you for understanding. Because this is something that you're working in my life. You're making me into the man you want me to be. He then moves immediately from his silence, recognizing that that God is in control. Then he moves to a prayer for understanding. Look at it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity. When you do this, when you correct man for his iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. He's looking at the brevity of life again. A moth is a picture of the brevity of life. How do I know that? Because look at the next phrase. Surely every man is vapor. We saw that before, right? Every man is like gas dissipating away. So he's saying, Lord, remove it. I recognize what you're doing now. I see that you're correcting me. I see that you're guiding me and directing me that this is something that you've allowed in my life to develop me into the man you want me to be. So he's recognizing that now because before he prayed for understanding, now we see him coming to understanding. Still, he says, I'm silent. And still, the second stage is prayer. Well, then deliver me, God. Deliver me. Give me this understanding. I have understanding. Now deliver me. Look at verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Again, the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, Hear my prayer and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. Do not be silent at my tears. The Bible tells us that God values the tears that we cry so much so, the poetic language of the psalm says that God catches them in a bottle and he saves every tear. So when we say, don't you care? Don't you care that I'm weeping? Don't you care the pain I'm having? God cares so much, the Bible describes him as catching your tears and saving them in a bottle. The value of, of the, the sorrow of his people. And he, but look at what David says at the end of verse 12. For I am a stranger with you. I feel estranged. I feel like I'm not in the place. I'm a stranger in your presence. And then he described, not only am I, am I a stranger in your presence, God, but I'm a sojourner like my fathers were. Now listen to what he's saying. He's saying, look, hear my prayer, God. I need your deliverance because right now I feel like I'm a stranger with you. And what I am is a pilgrim like my father's. None of those people had a home, right? When, when Abraham was, was traveling from tent to tent through the desert, the Bible in the book of Hebrews tells us that he was looking for a city that had foundations whose maker and builder was God. He was looking for the city of God. He was looking for a place that God had for him. And nothing on this earth was ever going to satisfy that. And so Abraham, knowing that, or knowing that was a sojourner, a pilgrim, always moving. Now David has a city. He's got Jerusalem. He's got all this stuff. But he says, my spirit, in reality, I'm just a pilgrim. Uh, this place isn't what satisfies me. What satisfies me is being in your presence. And right now I feel like a stranger in your presence. So I want your deliverance. I want your deliverance. Restore me. Restore me to that rightful place so that I can be where you want me to be. Remove your gaze from me so that I might regain strength before I go away and am no more. So he's saying, Lord, restore me, bring me back, save me, put all the pieces back together. So he's going through a hard time filled with frustration. He recognizes, I need to be silent, pray. Pray for understanding, pray for recognizing that the, the important things in life. And then when he comes back around and looks at it again, he says, oh, I'm glad I was silent because God's the one who brought this in my life. It was correction that God was doing in my life to get me on the right path. And then he moves from there to prayer and says, Lord, give me understanding and deliver me, save me, get me back on the path I need to be on. When we look at the Psalms of David, one of the important things that we want to be able to grasp and come away with, these are the things that show us into the soul of a man described as a man after God's own heart. Somebody for whom his desire for God 
And a relationship with God was greater than his desire for anything else. And that's exactly the kind of thing Jesus is asking for from us. Right? He says, if you're going to be my disciple, you got to renounce everything. Forsake it all. That God can have that, that central place in our life, right? The, he's the main thing that keeps all of the other things in perspective. And when God's in that right place, and it's not my wife or my kids or something else, when God's in that right place, I'm a better husband, father, friend. Then if I get it out of order, and I put all those other things there, because now I'm not the kind of father I need to be, and I'm not the kind of husband I need to be, and I'm not the kind of friend I need to be, because God's not central. And David teaches that as we work our way through his psalms, the understanding that God is what really matters. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.